The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you a story about a young woman who went missing in Utah, but this isn't a cut-and-dry missing persons case. Although she is presumed dead and many people believe they do know who is responsible, this case is absolutely nothing but straightforward. Even more importantly to note, it is full of tragedy. Today's story involves suicide, domestic violence, child abuse and child murder, as well as a quick mention of child pornography. This story is one of those ones that as you're listening, I'm sure you'll be thinking to yourself, this can't get any worse, right? Right? But unfortunately, it does. With that, please take care of yourself while you're choosing to or not to listen to today's episode, and without further ado, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Susan Marie Powell was born on October 16th in 1981 in Alamogordo, New Mexico, United States. She was born Susan Marie Cox to parents Chuck and Judy Cox, and according to the Susan Cox Powell Foundation, she was the third daughter to her parents, and although she was born in New Mexico, she certainly didn't stay there. Susan would also live in Alaska before her family settled into Washington State. And eventually, as we'll get into later, she would go on to move to Utah. It's safe to say that during her short life, she certainly had a lot of life experience. A direct quote from the Susan Cox Powell Foundation website says, Susan is an outgoing, optimistic person with a servant's heart and boundless energy. She is characterized by her faith in her heavenly father, her determination to provide for her children, and her belief that families are forever. Throughout her life, Susan was an active member in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the LDS Church or the Mormon Church. Susan was devout in her faith even as she grew into her own independent person, and her belief in God was integral to her character and the way she carried herself throughout her life. In November of 2000, then Susan Cox met a young man during a dinner party in Tacoma, Washington. This dinner party was an LDS church function, and so everyone in attendance was a member of that church. For someone so devout in her faith, this was the perfect place to meet her potential partner in life. And so when Susan Cox encountered Josh Powell, I'm sure she was ecstatic about the connection that they instantly seemed to have between each other. According to Susan's sister Denise, at the very beginning of their connection formation, they were quote-unquote, you know, happy, holding hands, hugging, kissing each other. You thought they were a perfect couple, a very happy couple. Essentially, they couldn't keep their hands or their eyes off of each other after this encounter. Although it seemed like a fairy tale romance, the perfect love story that Susan always deserved according to her friends and family, the relationship started moving very fast, at least in my opinion. 
only about five months after the two started dating, they would get married in April of 2001. Susan was only 19 when they got engaged. But let me backtrack a little bit and introduce you to Josh Powell. Josh was born on January 20th of 1976. His parents' names were Stephen and Terika Powell. The family unit lived in Payalup, Washington. And of course, like I mentioned, they were also devout members of the LDS church. And the couple also had other children. Josh had a brother named Michael and two sisters, one named Jennifer and one named Alina. But according to many sources I read, the family unit and especially the marriage between Stephen and Terika was anything but functional. Much of the contention between their relationship seemed to come from disagreements about their faith and especially how to practice it. But it goes a little deeper than that. Stephen and Terika Powell's relationship really began to formally disintegrate in 1992 when divorce papers were officially filed. Josh would have only been 16 at this time, but apparently in the 16 years he lived with his parents as they were a married couple, it was anything but easy. According to documents associated with that divorce filing, it seemed like Stephen Powell, Josh's dad, was a bit of a loose cannon to put it lightly. The couple seemed to disagree heavily about regulations on what the kids could and couldn't do. But the disagreements about what the kids could and couldn't do, and disagreements about practice of their faith, again extended well beyond whether or not the kids were going to be forced to go to church. According to Terika, Stephen Powell was reportedly showing his young sons, Josh and Michael, graphic pornography from a young age. During family or marital arguments, Stephen would sometimes lash out violently out of nowhere, especially directing his anger towards Josh, and according to Terika, this may have had a lasting impression on him. During these proceedings, it came out that Terika claimed Josh became very withdrawn as a teenager. She's quoted as saying he was unwilling to interact, even to make eye contact for a year or two, he seemed to have a soul-deep hurt because of his dad's erratic and explosive behavior. She goes on to discuss how Josh began to mirror his father's behavior, also being explosive and erratic. At one point, the situation was so intense in the Powell family home, Josh even attempted suicide allegedly either at 13 or 14 years old. There were also allegations that Stephen even taught and demonstrated to his two young boys, Michael and Josh, how to mock, ridicule, and criticize their mother. And this is something Terika says she experienced from her son, Josh. When asked to do a simple chore around the house, Josh was quoted once as saying, you have to earn respect, mom. What have you done to earn my respect? And this kind of behavior didn't stop at just verbal abuse. As a teenager, Josh would reportedly go on to exhibit even more odd behavior. On one occasion, he was reported to have killed a gerbil and threatened his mother with a butcher knife when, again, asked to do a simple chore. During this incident, he's quoted as saying, Don't push it, mom. This dysfunctional household was obviously not a safe place for any child to grow up, but especially someone as particularly impressionable as Josh seemed to be, it was incredibly damaging. 
and Terika believes that his behavior as a teenager was the result of, quote, not knowing where the boundaries are, what are the limits of acceptable behavior. Stephen Powell, on the other hand, also had some interesting things to say about Terika. He claimed that his wife's spiritual beliefs extended far past the scope of what traditional Mormonism really is all about. Terika was reportedly into herbs and spices and maybe things like astrology and Reiki, I'm not exactly sure what. But to him, he claimed that these practices were essentially witchcraft and devil worship. But while he was on one side of the courtroom during these divorce proceedings claiming that his wife was a witch, she was on the other side claiming that Steve Powell needed quote-unquote serious medical help due to some underlying problem, as she would go on to mention in court that Stephen collected books on the occult and also had a keen interest in pornography, which he shared with his sons openly, as I mentioned before. Given the behavior that she noticed especially Josh was exhibiting towards her, and especially how it began to mirror the violence that her now ex-husband was exhibiting towards her, she thought that her older sons would eventually need counseling. She hoped that it would undo all of that quote-unquote faulty thinking that he has established in them. Whether you take the side of Steve or Terika just with these surface details, at the end of these proceedings, when it was time to sort out custody of the kids who were all minors at the time, it was decided, and I'm not sure why, that Steve Powell would take custody of his sons Josh and Michael, as well as Jennifer, but Terika would take custody of Alina. But Alina herself would even eventually go on to live with her dad after a few years, and again, I'm not entirely sure why. Whether you think one or both parents are to blame, there is no question that this family unit was extremely dysfunctional. There's also no question that these dysfunctional habits manifested in the character of at least Josh, and that's something we're going to elaborate on a lot in just a few minutes. By the late 90s, Josh Powell was living in Seattle and attending the University of Washington. Although some of my research stated that he did have some disdain for his family's spiritual faith in the LDS church, he would go on to continue following it even as he moved out and away for college. He actually met a woman while he was there named Catherine Everett at a local LDS church congregation. The two would eventually start dating, but the manifestations of Josh Powell's toxic household being present in his behavior didn't take very long to show up in his adult relationships. And I say this because all of my research pointed to Josh being very possessive towards Catherine. She's even directly quoted as saying, he would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. If I was going to visit them, he had to come too, I couldn't go by myself. And this went on for all 16 months that they were together from 1998 to 1999. He was not only trying to control Catherine's personal relationships, but also her finances. But Catherine was not about to put up with Josh any longer. In 1999, she would take a solo trip to Utah. It's unclear to me whether she went on this trip with a friend or to visit a friend or maybe to visit family, but what I do know is that when she got there, 
she was not coming back to Seattle, and she had decided that she was going to break up with Josh once and for all and take control of her life back, and she did this over the phone. Josh was reportedly furious about this, and this comes out in later discoveries of his journal entries from around this time. Journal entries that he had apparently revisited, edited, and was so furious about it that he blanked out some of it with whiteout. Not everyone in Josh's life knew that he was prone to fits of rage and sometimes even violence, but the inner workings of his journal certainly knew all about it. Now we jump back to April of 2001. Susan and Josh had just gotten married, and the couple decided to settle into Stephen's home, Josh's dad, in Payola, Washington. But very quickly, this had become quite a tricky situation. Unbeknownst to Susan in the early days, Stephen had developed an obsession with her. Stephen's infatuation with Susan would grow over time. Very quickly, Stephen saw no issue with expressing these feelings outwardly directly to her. Eventually, Stephen would go on to outwardly just follow Susan around the house with a camcorder. There was one instance where he was caught using a small mirror to spy on her in the bathroom. He would reportedly steal her underwear from her laundry basket. He was known to read her journals. And then he would even end up posting love songs about Susan, presumably online, under the pseudonym Stephen Chantry. It was clear from the lyrics of these love songs that Stephen's infatuation with Susan, in his mind, was reciprocated. Let me read you an excerpt of some of the lyrics from one song that Stephen posted online about Susan. I could be getting a mistaken impression. Each time you seem to gaze at me, you let me touch you softly. Why is the question, and the effect amazes me. Susan obviously was not reciprocating these feelings towards Stephen, and his interpretation of touching you softly was clearly just a delusion, but that did not stop him from attempting to pursue his son's literal wife. In 2003, he outwardly confronted Susan and confessed his love for her. She obviously rejected him, and this entire interaction was captured on Stephen's camcorder. Josh and Susan would eventually relocate to West Valley, Utah without Stephen. Some reports say that they did this so they could start having discussions about starting a family. Some reports say they just wanted some independence. But there's no denying that part of this decision definitely came out of Susan wanting to get away from Stephen. But despite now living in Utah, Susan was still receiving advances from him. Stephen would reportedly still reach out to Susan, send her letters, some of them explicit in nature, and included photos of Stephen in the nude. According to some of Susan's friends who have now spoken out after the fact, they recall how, frankly, horrific these letters and photos were. They were horrifying, graphic, terrifying, and gross. To Susan, frankly, it was jarring not only to have a stalker, but for it to be her husband's own father. Now, I want you to keep this behavior in mind, because I think it's an interesting callback to the behavior we discussed that Terika, Stephen's then ex-wife, spoke about during their divorce proceedings. 
Terika said that Stephen had an obsession with pornography, one that he shared openly with his sons, and in general, he was just an overly sexual person, even in the most inappropriate of settings, as we're seeing now. Like I mentioned, when the couple relocated to West Valley, Utah, they were doing their best to settle in. West Valley, Utah is in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, and that is where Josh and Susan tried to find their footing. Josh would use his bachelor's degree in business and work for a couple of different companies over the years, but he would eventually settle into real estate. You can actually still find his website online, and I'll link that in the source material for this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca. Susan, on the other hand, was a trained cosmetologist, but instead she would end up taking a job with Wells Fargo Investments. On the outside, everything was going pretty well for the Powells. They were settling into their new home, getting used to their new community, and in 2005, they would have their first son, Charles. Even more exciting was in 2007 when they had their second son, a boy named Brayden. But although on the outside, it may have looked like the Powells were living the white picket fence all-American dream, they were two working, God-fearing Christian Americans with a growing family, they were seemingly boundless in their endeavors and had everything in the world to look forward to, Susan's journal entries at this time, as well as some emails that she exchanged with her friends, indicate the presence of marital discord, to put it lightly. It seemed that tensions arose over Josh's refusal to attend church with his family. As you'll recall, the Powells were Mormons and both Josh and Susan grew up attending and being devout to their faith in affiliation with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But like I had mentioned before, Josh seemed maybe to wax and wane away from his faith as he was growing up and now it seemed like he may or may not have wanted anything to do with it at all. Another major point of contention in their marriage was the fact that Josh continued to be in frequent contact with his father, Stephen. And yes, that is the same Stephen that was harassing, frankly, Susan, even after they moved to a different state. Josh and Susan were arguing frequently over everything you could ever imagine faith, family, finances, they were learning how to raise children together, trying to manage their schedules while also maintaining a relationship which frankly wasn't going very well, and the bitterness and anger and resentment between them seemed to start to mirror what Josh experienced in his own household between his own parents. Susan's friends would later speak out about Josh's controlling behavior over Susan. And this kind of behavior from Josh was something that only Catherine Everett, his ex-girlfriend who broke up with him in 1999, knew that he was capable of. Susan would have been none the wiser until it was already too late. In one email, Susan writes to one of her friends, I want him in counseling, on meds, I want my husband, friend, lover, back, no more crazy, outrageous, outlandish beliefs and opinions. In some more quotes from more 2008 emails from Susan, she writes, I'm sure if he fixes himself, 
everyone else will see a much closer version of the guy I married, and it will be easy enough to forget the hell and turmoil he has put me through. Every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with, it feels like a never-ending cycle, but I'm too afraid of the consequences. Losing my kids, him kidnapping, divorce or actions worse on his part. She even made one comment about fearing that Josh would cut off access to her own paycheck. From these emails, it's abundantly clear that Josh and Susan were struggling with problems that were much deeper than I previously described. And frankly, they were much deeper than anyone in Susan's life would have predicted for her given how amazingly the relationship was working out in the beginning and how obsessed the couple really was with each other. They may have been struggling somewhat financially, but deeper than that was that Josh was trying to control Susan's finances. They may have been struggling to adapt to raising their children together, but deeper than that, Josh may have very well been threatening to take custody of them if Susan decided to divorce, leave him, or retaliate against him in any way. And the anger and turmoil that Susan describes is eerily similar to that that his own father perpetrated against his mother. It's also reminiscent of the way he treated Catherine Everett, but again, Susan would have been none the wiser until it was too late. Susan also wouldn't have had any idea about how irresponsible Josh was. In 2007, according to some reports I found, Josh actually filed for bankruptcy, declaring over $200,000 in debt. It was unclear to me what these debts actually were, but in 2008, Susan would record a video house tour surveying both property damage attributed to Josh, as well as quite expensive gadgets that he had that she seemingly had some resentment over him purchasing. In this video, Susan begins by saying that it's only for the purposes of recording all of their assets. But frankly, it's quite eerie, and it makes me wonder if even just by the words that she was saying, and how she was saying them, if she might have known that something was coming. Uh, this is me, July 29th, 2008. It is 12.33, mountain time. Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. In this same video, she also documents a few different incidences where Josh, in an angry rage, destroyed some of her own belongings. And I had necklaces too, I don't know where those are, just got in a rage, as you can see, and broke this. There's duds and pearls and opals in there. Broke this and threw all my DVDs and made a mess because he was angry at me about a year or two back. As well, it seems like although he had no trouble spending money on electronics and things that he wanted, he didn't hesitate to cut Susan off from spending money on things that she might have enjoyed. My toiletries, nail polish, makeup. I like to do Mary Kay, but it's expensive, so Josh always cuts me off after a while. 
again, it seems like Susan might have had alternative motivations for wanting to record this video. To me, it seems like she wanted it to be recorded and documented exactly what she was going through inside of the family home, specifically at the hands of her husband, Josh. On the morning of December 6th in 2009, Susan and her two sons, Charles and Brayden, attended their Sunday service at church. Later that afternoon, a neighbor would visit the three of them in their home in West Valley before leaving them around 5 p.m. Unfortunately, this was the last time that Susan was ever seen alive. On December 7th, the next day on a Monday, the entire family, Josh, Charles, Brayden, and Susan, were reported missing by relatives. Josh's mom, Terica, and his sister, Jennifer, went looking for the whole family at their West Valley home shortly after being informed that the children, Charles and Brayden, had not been dropped off at their daycare that morning and the daycare workers had failed to make contact with either Josh or Susan. For reasons unknown, neither parent was picking up their phone. Susan herself did not show up to her job that morning either, and so police were called to conduct a wellness check. West Valley PD quickly showed up to their home and forced themselves into the house. They had initially feared that the entire family had died from carbon monoxide poisoning, given how uncharacteristic it was for someone to not drop off the children and neither of them to show up to their jobs. But oddly, when they opened the door, they found nobody inside. They did notice a few things though. They noticed two fans blowing what looked like a wet spot on the couch. They were also able to locate Susan's purse, wallet, and identification, but they couldn't find her cell phone. That was until around 5 p.m. that day, Josh Powell pulled into the home in the family's Chrysler town and country minivan with his two sons in the back, seemingly not at all privy to what was happening and in possession of Susan's phone with the SIM card removed. Josh was immediately taken in for questioning at the West Valley Police Department. But even before he was brought there, the first couple of questions police had for him, he couldn't answer. He didn't know where his wife was, and he could not explain why he had her cell phone either. During the formal interview conducted by West Valley Police, Josh had claimed to them that he had actually left Susan sleeping at their home shortly after midnight on December 7th, and that he had decided to take his two sons, Charles and Brayden, on a spontaneous camping trip to Simpson Springs in the western Utah region. When Josh was asked why he wasn't answering the phone when the daycare workers were calling as well as the rest of his family, he said that he didn't have a charger and he was trying to conserve his battery given he was out in the wilderness with his sons. But apparently, according to one source I read, officers could literally see the phone sitting in the car plugged into the cigarette lighter. Already, they could tell that something was definitely off. Even further, police were unable to even verify the presence of any remnants of a campsite in the area that Josh had claimed to go to that night during a visit they conducted on December 10th, but we'll get to all of that. What's interesting to me is that on the night of December 6th in 2009 in Utah, it was a blizzard. 
And so, even intuitively, it was kind of an odd night to take your boys on a camping trip in the middle of nowhere, especially when you're leaving at midnight. Even further, the boys' daycare, again, had not been notified in advance of their absence that day, and Josh, again, didn't tell his work either. Police immediately thought this story was suspicious at the very least. It didn't add up in the slightest, and it was totally nonsensical what Josh was claiming to have done that night. But he would still make a weak attempt at trying to explain all of this away by saying he just got his days mixed up. He didn't notify the daycare of his son's absence, nor his own work, because he simply thought it was Sunday and not Monday. If you're listening right now and thinking to yourself, that is absolute bullshit, me too. The day before, Josh would have absolutely known, if not seen, his wife and two sons head out for Sunday service at the LDS church. You know, the service that happens on Sunday. And so there's no way, in my mind, that he would have gotten his dates mixed up and thought that that day was accidentally Saturday and that the Monday was Sunday. Even further, it makes no sense why he decided to take his boys on a camping trip. But it gets so much worse than that. On December 9th, West Valley police would search the family home. Pretty quickly, they were able to find trace amounts of blood belonging to Susan next to the sofa, the same one with the wet spot on it, and on the carpet in the living room. Interestingly, they were also able to find a life insurance policy for Susan totaling 1.5 million US dollars, and they also found a handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. This was a part of a secret will and testament that Susan had written around the same time I presume that she had recorded that video house tour. In this letter, Susan writes, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. In the house, police also found another blood sample coming from a quote-unquote unknown male contributor. But despite everything they found, none of it actually led police anywhere. Searches for Susan went underway and went totally fruitless. There was not a single trace of her anywhere that anyone looked. But there was almost nobody that believed that she left of her own volition. In an interview with Fox News, Susan's dad, Chuck Cox, says, quote, There's no way that my daughter would leave her children or leave her home under the circumstances that they found, leaving her purse and cell phone and keys behind, given the oddness of the disappearance and that no one seems to have any idea where she may be. I believe it's possible that she may have been taken out of state or out of the area. If she were able to contact us, she would. Despite maintaining his innocence, as well as the series of events that took place in his cheap excuse for an alibi, many people were starting to regard Josh as acting highly suspicious in the early days after Susan disappeared, and for good reason. It was discovered that the day after Susan was reported missing on December 8th, Josh rented a car at the Salt Lake City Airport and returned it two days later after driving it more than 800 miles. But as far as I'm concerned and my research is concerned, I'm not exactly sure where he went, and I'm not sure anyone else is either. Only 10 days after she went missing, Josh would liquidate all of Susan's retirement accounts. 
He would also very promptly cancel her regularly scheduled chiropractor appointments. Seemingly out of nowhere, he withdrew his children from that same daycare, and there was also reports that he had made comments to some of his co-workers about how to hide a body in an abandoned mineshaft in the Utah desert. Police would also go on to eventually interview Charles, Susan and Josh's oldest son, who would confirm to them that the camping trip Josh says he took them on around midnight of December 7th, leaving his wife sleeping in their home, never actually took place. They definitely did go out to the middle of nowhere, but there was no pitching of tents, no s'mores around a campfire, nothing like that. Interestingly, Charles said that wherever they went that night, Susan actually came with them, but she didn't come back. Even more odd behavior would be exhibited from these two children after the fact. It came out that weeks after her disappearance, a teacher at Charles's school reported that he claimed his mom was dead, and he said it matter-of-factly. Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, also claimed that Charles would go on to draw a photo of a van with three people in it, presumably himself, his brother Brayden, and his dad Josh, and told people at his daycare that, quote-unquote, mommy was in the trunk. It was also revealed that back in 2009, investigators would subpoena all of the footage and interviews that Josh did on TV, and that included everything that never even made it to air. Only about a week after Susan went missing, he retained an attorney, which is not entirely suspicious in itself, but police note that after this point, he became increasingly uncooperative. A few days later, he would take his sons to Payulup in Washington to stay with his creepy dad, Stephen, for the holiday season, seemingly, at least in my opinion, to be a last-ditch effort to get as far away from the investigation as possible. People across North America had already begun to form their opinions about Josh's involvement. And by December 16th, only 10 days after Susan Powell was last seen alive, Josh was considered an official person of interest in the investigation. And then on January 6th of 2010, he returned back home to West Valley, Utah from Washington with his brother Michael to pack up all of his belongings and move permanently in with his father in Payulup, intending to live there with his sons, his dad, his brothers, and his sister Alina. The Utah home was simply going to be rented out. Again, in my opinion, for the purposes of staying as far away from the investigation as possible. Now, there's another piece of Josh's involvement in this investigation, or I guess a lack thereof, that I have yet to mention. Instead of cooperating with police as one would presume a grieving husband would try to do when his wife goes missing, he decided to launch SusanPowell.org, and it was apparently supposed to be the official website of Susan Powell. At the time, and technically still now, it's unclear who ran it, but many people suspect it was Josh, and even more people suspect that it was ran with the help of his father, and possibly even his brother Michael. Instead of this website being a source of information about Susan and her last known whereabouts, 
This website defended Josh as the victim of what he called a character assassination, a smear campaign by Susan's family, his own estranged sister Jennifer, and the LDS church. From my research, it's not entirely clear what happened between Josh and Jennifer for them to become estranged, but I suspect it had a lot to do with Jennifer suspecting that her own brother was involved in Susan's disappearance. And because of that, she was mentioned a lot on this website, and certainly not in a favorable light. Nobody was. Not Susan, not her family, and not anybody who wasn't on his side. Now, despite many people agreeing that this website was very obviously run by Josh and his family, he refers to himself in the third person. And again, all he does is talk shit about Susan and her family. Let me read you a couple excerpts from this website, but I will have it linked, at least the web-archived version, on my website at crimopediapod.ca. Quote, We have not responded directly to negative and defamatory comments until now because Josh and the rest of us expected Susan to return quickly, and Josh didn't want to drive wedges between the Coxes, Susan's family, and Josh's own family. Josh remains sympathetic toward them in spite of their total lack of sympathy toward him. Despite him claiming that he is the victim of a character assassination, it seems like the entire purpose of this website is to do exactly that to his missing and likely murdered wife. Quote, Susan Powell has always struggled with emotional issues and anger management, but she works hard to improve. However, Josh felt Susan's issues were affecting Susan more deeply over time in 2009, so he was encouraging her to see a psychiatrist. To emphasize the need for help, Josh told Susan that she was quote-unquote becoming her mother. Josh now realizes that this was the last thing she needed to hear. Josh used the wrong approach, thus bringing one of her worst fears to life, and deeply regrets it. Oh my god. His condescending and degrading comments are quite ironic considering she had been begging him in private to seek therapy for his well-defined maladaptive behaviors. And if there's one thing men always have, it's nerve. But I digress. This website then goes on to make desperate and weak attempts at trying to explain away all of the evidence in the case that potentially pointed towards Josh as being involved in Susan's disappearance. Quote, Jennifer Graves, Josh's estranged sister, found a large spot on the couch in the living room, Kool-Aid pink, about two feet in diameter. Jennifer Graves looked directly at Josh with an accusatory expression and said, Josh, how could you? Josh explained that it was probably some kind of spilled drink and that it had been there a very long time. I presume this Kool-Aid pink, two feet in diameter wide wet spot is the same one that police found on the day that they conducted a wellness check on the Powell family that was positioned with two fans blowing at it. But again, it's clear that Josh is doing everything in his power to twist and manipulate circumstances and stories to try and make what very possibly could be evidence not look like so. 
To top it all off, a subsection on this website has to do with potential theories surrounding Susan's disappearance. He makes a loose connection between Susan's case and the disappearance of a journalist named Stephen Kosher, who actually vanished from the same area of Utah the same week that Susan did, and his theory is that the two ran away together. Josh posits an entire section of this site dedicated to drawing loose parallels between these two cases. Underneath, there's an entire section with the subheading, Susan Powell leading a secret double life. I don't know a single loving husband who would speak about their wife like that, especially when she is missing. Stephen Kosher, this former journalist who was also missing, was reportedly undergoing some financial hardship. And before he disappeared, he was exhibiting some odd behavior that his family would end up attributing to him attempting to elicit sources of money. If you're interested in looking into the case of Stephen Kosher, I'll link the Wikipedia page about his disappearance also in my source material for this episode. It's a good jumping off point to get an idea of what actually happened in his case, and the more you dive in, the more you'll realize it has absolutely nothing to do with Susan. All in all, there are no real connections to the case of Stephen Kosher and Susan Powell, other than the two being approximately the same age and disappearing from relatively the same area of Utah in the same week. But there is no evidence of prior correspondence between the two, and for all intents and purposes, it didn't appear that they knew each other at all. So it makes no sense that they would run away together after living a secret double life, and this theory is completely unfounded. Police would go on to dig into other members of Josh's family a little bit further, and it started with Michael. Shortly after Susan's disappearance, one of the many things that Josh went on to do that police would consider to be suspicious was sell his Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Pendleton, Oregon. I'm not exactly sure what the significance of this location is, but police would go on to order satellite images of the lot and question Michael, who reportedly assisted his brother in bringing that vehicle to the wrecking yard. Even further, he was evasive about why he helped him and why they chose that particular location, let alone why they sold it in the first place. Police would go and find that car in the wrecking yard, and they searched it with the help of a cadaver dog. They weren't able to find anything just by looking, but the cadaver dog did indicate that potentially a decomposing human body may have been in the trunk. However, when that area of the car was tested, swabbed for DNA, nothing proved to be conclusive. They weren't really able to find anything of relevance. They figured that somehow this car fit into the investigation significantly, they just weren't exactly sure how. Then in 2010, police would dig into Steven's computer, presumably because Josh was likely also using it too. But what they found were that Steven had up to 4,500 images of Susan, all that were taken without her knowledge or obviously consent, and they included close-ups of her face and quote-unquote specific body parts. Also found were videos and images of two young girls that were neighbors of Steven, who he had been recording through their bathroom window. 
these videos would get Stephen arrested, charged, and eventually convicted of voyeurism. Not only did these discoveries further validate Stephen's obsession with Susan that was continuous and ongoing, but it also further validated the comments Terika, Josh's mom and Stephen's ex-wife, made about him during their divorce proceedings back in the 90s. I bring this up because the sexual nature of images and items around that family home will become important once again. And I think it's even more important to be continuously reminding you of exactly who Josh was raised by, and it may explain exactly why he ended up the way he did. In 2011, West Valley Police, in conjunction with some other police agencies from counties in the surrounding area, were working diligently to search desert areas in Eli, Nevada, but on September 14th, they were honing in on the Topaz Mountain area. And this was because they had become privy to the fact that Josh had reportedly frequently camped there. While they were out there, they stumbled upon what seemed like a potential gravesite. And according to some reports I read, 11 different cadaver dogs had indicated to this area, meaning that potentially a decomposing body had been there before. Interestingly, instead of a set of remains, police found what was about a hundred pieces of charred wood, but the cadaver dogs were still indicating at them. According to West Valley Police Lieutenant Bill Merritt, quote, these charred pieces had something to do with decomposition. According to the police, the cadaver dogs indicating at these particular pieces of charred wood means that at some point these pieces more than likely came into contact with some sort of decomposing human flesh. But despite this finding, as well as signs of disturbed soil and shoveling, police were unable to uncover anything concrete despite careful sifting and being in that area for several consecutive days. At the end of all of their efforts, they still couldn't find Susan. As you can imagine, given Josh's odd behavior after Susan disappeared, as well as the fact that he was a person of interest and police were clearly investigating any avenue that they could relating to him, the relationship between them and Susan's family became extremely hostile. This was only compounded by the fact that Josh and his father, Stephen, had begun speaking out openly about the fact that they thought Susan ran away with another man, and she was known to allegedly engage in infidelity. The two alluded to the fact that Susan was in love with Stephen, Josh's dad. Meanwhile, we all know it was very much the other way around. But Stephen claimed that he and Susan had been falling in love prior to her disappearance. He used this fabricated relationship between him and Susan to say that if she was falling in love with him and they were having an extramarital affair, then it wasn't too unrealistic to assume she might have done the same thing with another man, and she probably just ran off with him. This is very similar to the theory that they posited about the connections between Susan and Stephen Kosher, but this time, obviously Josh's dad, Creepy Stephen, couldn't help himself but to get a little personal jab in there just to make things right for himself. He tried to cite journal entries that Susan wrote as a teenager just to substantiate these points that she must have run away with another man because she had wandering eyes. 
but a judge would issue a permanent injunction forbidding Josh and Stephen from releasing any journal entries that Susan had written at any point in her life. And then they were either ordered to return or destroy what other entries they might have had access to. But once again, I think it's pretty ironic that everything Josh and Steven accused Susan of doing, they were actually doing to her. And that includes Josh accusing Susan of being mentally unwell and needing to seek therapy, as well as Steven claiming that Susan was in love with him. Evidently, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in this case. The day after Steven's arrest, Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, filed for custody of Susan and Josh's two children, Brayden and Charles, and was hoping to essentially remove them from that home and just to a safer place. Something I've yet to mention is that on top of voyeurism charges being filed against Stephen Powell, he was also charged for possession of child pornography. The two kind of go hand in hand if he's filming minors and are pretty intuitive, but for all intents and purposes, I think we can assume and I think Chuck and Judy Cox would agree that this household that the kids were staying in was not a safe place for them to be. And it was during this hearing, this custody hearing, where Stephen's fascination with porn and open displays of it to his own children while Josh and Michael were growing up was really elaborated on. Despite being an active person of interest in the disappearance and presumed murder of Susan Powell, Josh was also a quote-unquote subject into the child porn investigation that was launched against his father Stephen, according to John Long, Assistant Attorney General for Washington State. But during this hearing, Josh claimed he had no knowledge of Stephen's porn obsession or collection, and then he went on to deny that he was ever showed porn while growing up. Now, this was particularly odd, according to the attorney that represented Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy, as the porn thing was such a big deal and very prevalent as a discussion piece in the divorce proceedings between Terika and Steve, those very same proceedings I discussed at the beginning of the episode. He was likely doing this to save face. Obviously, the point of this hearing was to take Josh's children away from him, and that was the last thing he wanted in the entire world. But this porn obsession by his father was so prevalent in Josh and Michael's lives that Terika, their mom, even made that comment in court during those divorce proceedings about her oldest boys likely benefiting largely from therapy later in life. And I think Chuck and Judy Cox wanted to use these points to demonstrate that if Steven was dangerous, then more than likely Josh was too. And again, all of this is totally aside from the fact that he is an active person of interest. Despite Josh's best efforts to salvage his character in court, Chuck and Judy Cox were granted temporary custody of his two boys, ruling that if Josh wanted his kids back, he would have to move out of his father's house. To get around this, Josh would end up renting a house in the South Hill area of Salt Lake City. But according to Detective Gary Sanders, it seemed that Josh never actually moved into this home and only rented it to make it appear like he was trying to satisfy the court's requirements and get his kids back without actually doing what he was instructed to do. At this point, Josh's true colors were being widely criticized across North American media outlets. Not only was he an active person of interest in the disappearance and presumed death of his wife Susan Powell, 
but he was the son of a pedophile, was himself part of that investigation into his father's pedophilia, was outed to be not complying with the courts, and then his estranged sister Jennifer came out and stated that she believed Josh was responsible for Susan's disappearance. In addition, his sister Alina had also become growing increasingly suspicious, despite her later publicly withdrawing her suspicions about Josh, and then going on to state that she believes her brother was unfairly harassed by those involved in the investigation, his family's statements about his potential involvement really resonated with the public. In the court of public opinion, he was essentially guilty. In accordance with the process of regaining custody of his children, Josh would undergo a series of court-ordered evaluations in the state of Washington. These evaluations were conducted by James Manley, a forensic psychologist, and he determined that Josh had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record including domestic violence. As we know, just because there's no criminal record doesn't mean there wasn't violence, but I digress. Interestingly though, despite this overall positive review of Josh and his ability to take care of his children, James Manley also noted a few other things. There was the obvious ongoing criminal investigations into the whereabouts of his wife, Susan. As well, James Manley noted that Josh had a failure to admit normal personal shortcomings, whatever that means. But he also noted that Josh was persistently defensive and that he also exhibited paranoia that he attributed to the police and the media attention in conjunction with underlying narcissistic traits. Personally, that is not a big shocker. Interestingly though, James Manley also noted that Josh was very overbearing when it came to his sons. He wanted to control their every move whenever he could. And this explains why he was so overwhelmingly upset with this temporary loss of custody. And you would think that anyone would be, but you wouldn't think that anyone would go on to do the things Josh did. But we'll get there. Just keep this in mind for later. Given the results of this evaluation, Manley recommended that Josh have visitation with his sons several times per week that were to be supervised by a social worker. These visitation conditions, as well as the schedule, remained unchanged when in January of 2012, a computer in his home that was searched by police was found to have, yet again, about 400 images of child porn, bestiality, and incest. The only difference was, was that these images were drawn and sketched, as opposed to taken of other women without their consent. In Josh's home, police also found a noose and a poster of a naked woman with a sword through her body. It was later revealed that the images on this computer did not belong to Josh, but they were in fact cached on a computer that Susan had purchased secondhand from another member of the LDS church. However, these kinds of items being found in Josh's home could very likely have huge implications on Josh's battle for custody. And in fact, Josh was ordered to undergo a psychosexual evaluation, which he was reportedly not very happy about. But it makes sense that police and child and welfare services wanted to make sure that Josh was fit to be a parent, 
if his own father was in the process of being charged and convicted as a pedophilic sexual deviant, and throughout Josh's childhood, his father had no issues sharing these fascinations with pornography with him, then it makes sense that finding child porn, bestiality, and incest cartoons, as well as violent depictions of naked women in Josh's home, kind of just made sense. But these conditions are unsafe for children to be around. And Child and Welfare Services wanted to make sure that if custody was to be awarded back to Josh, that it was going to be the right call. Josh was furious. Not only did it seem like it would become more of an uphill battle to regain custody of his children, a battle that he was already losing, but the pressure on him from police, the media, the public, all for what he likely did to his wife, was getting really, really hot. Him and his family would end up retaliating, setting up a Google site with his brother, and claiming that the Child and Welfare Services in the state of Washington were colluding with Susan's family and the LDS Church to try and take Josh down. Even without diving too deeply into what he said or wrote on this page, mostly because I can't find it, it's pretty obvious, even just to me now, looking in from the outside so many years later, that for the first time in his life, Josh was really starting to lose control. It's obvious that this was a pattern in his childhood. When he lost control of the dynamic between him and his mother, he held up a butcher knife and told her not to push it. When he lost control of his ex-girlfriend, Catherine Everett, he was so angry that he repeatedly revisited a journal, filling it with hatred and anger, coming back to those entries over and over again, raging onto pages being totally unable to control himself and his obsession. When he started to lose control of his wife, Susan, he more than likely killed her. And now that his family was falling apart, his dad was in jail for voyeurism and child porn, his kids were living with his in-laws, the same in-laws who were blatantly accusing him of killing their daughter, the same in-laws that were now closer with his estranged sister than he was. It was all very quickly coming to an end for Josh. Josh wanted to regain his control back, and that's exactly what he did. Josh would go on to do exactly what he felt was necessary to regain his control. But nobody in the entire world could have ever predicted that he would go on to do that in the way that it happened. On February 5th, 2012, a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin Hall would call 911 after taking Charles and Brayden to a supervised visit with their father at his house in South Hill. As I had described to you, these visits were regularly scheduled and there had been no problems leading up to this incident. So I can assure you that what Elizabeth Griffin Hall had to bear witness to that day was not only horrific, but equally as shocking. Elizabeth would report that when Josh opened the door to greet his two boys, he let them both inside in a hurry and quickly slammed the door shut. Obviously, he was not letting Elizabeth in, which was an obvious violation of the rules laid out in his visitation agreement. Elizabeth would go on to state in an interview in 2020 that she began to pound on the front door, yelling for Josh to let her in before running into the garage, presumably to try and gain access to the house from a different location, and she started smelling gasoline. 
She heard Josh from inside of the house tell his two young children to lay face down on the floor and that daddy's got a surprise for them. She initially began to phone her supervisor to notify concern over smelling gasoline, especially after Josh slammed and locked the front door and would not let her in. And then, without so much as a hint of warning, Josh's South Hill home, with himself and his two young boys in it, exploded. As you probably guessed, Charles, Brayden, and Josh all died instantly. When police were called to the location of the scene, it didn't take very long for investigators to understand that this had been deliberately planned as a double murder-suicide. And understandably, Elizabeth Griffin Hall, the social worker who was present the entire time and remarkably somehow escaped death herself, was distraught beyond words that I could possibly string together. She said in that moment, quote, I wanted to drop down dead so that I could take the children to Susan and they could find her in heaven. When first responders were able to finally extinguish the blaze that had erupted following the explosion, officers were able to go in and examine the house. Again, it was pretty obviously deliberate. What they found were two five-gallon cans of gas, as well as evidence that gasoline had been spread throughout the house in a meticulous fashion. They found Josh and the two children, but upon further examination, they noticed that the two children also had injuries to their face and neck. To investigators, these injuries resembled chopping marks, like from a hatchet or an axe, and coincidentally, they would find a hatchet located very close to Josh Powell's body. It seemed that he used this hatchet to attack his sons before being overwhelmed by smoke, fumes, and the subsequent explosion. But the official cause of death of Josh and his two sons was actually carbon monoxide poisoning. Whether or not the double murder-suicide was executed exactly as Josh planned it, the death trap of a house that he had spent time setting up evidently worked, and he was able to kill both of his two sons, himself, and again, likely his wife, years prior. Friends and relatives of Josh would tell police afterwards that they had been contacted via email only a single minute before the incident to say goodbye sent at 12.05 p.m. Some of the people who received these emails, including his local bishop, received instructions for finding his money and shutting off all of his utilities. Further evidence to prove that this entire thing was meticulously planned included the fact that Josh had actually withdrawn $7,000 from his bank account and donated his kids' toys and books to local charities the day before. Also, shortly before the incident, he named his brother Michael as the main beneficiary to his own life insurance policy. It's clear that Josh wanted all of his financial ducks in a row, and he wanted to divvy his assets out to who he felt was appropriate. After the explosion that resulted in Josh's death, as well as the death of his two sons, West Valley City Police started to zero in on Michael, his brother, as they suspected that he would be the last living being with total and complete knowledge of what happened to Susan Powell. 
Not that Josh wasn't already being uncooperative, but they knew now that if they wanted answers as to what happened to Susan, there was only one person that likely had the story in full, and they suspected him for a good while. They also had their suspicions of Stephen, Josh and Michael's dad, who they didn't believe actually was there at the time of Susan's disappearance and likely murder, but he was someone who had enough criminal history himself, as well as his own unique motive for potentially wanting to get revenge on Susan, being that she continuously rejected his frankly disgusting advances, and although he might not have been present at the time of whatever crime had been committed towards her, he might have been complicit in some other way. Authorities would notify Stephen, Josh's dad, of what had happened to his son and his two grandchildren, but Stephen was in jail at the time for those voyeurism charges in Monroe, Washington. Reportedly, when he was notified, he wasn't very upset by the news, at least it didn't seem like it, but he was upset at the officers who notified him. I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, other than Stephen might have been putting on a front. Maybe he knew of Josh's plan? I, I really don't know. But then, as police made the decision to dive deeper into Michael and Stephen as potentially being the last two people alive that might have a single clue of what happened to Susan, Stephen would invoke his Fifth Amendment right not to answer questions about Susan's disappearance. Like his son Josh, he became equally uncooperative. And as justice is what justice does, he would be convicted on those voyeurism charges in May of 2012. Michael, on the other hand, met a very different fate, one similar to his brother's, but very dissimilar to his father's. In February of 2013, approximately one year after the explosion that killed Josh, Charles, and Brayden, Michael killed himself in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he had moved to pursue a PhD in cognitive science. He was only 30 years old when he died, and for all intents and purposes, he was police's last hope of ever finding out what happened to Susan Powell. Authorities have since come out and stated that they believe he was an accomplice in the murder of Susan, and her family similarly believes that Stephen Powell knows exactly what happened to her as well. But unfortunately, Stephen Powell would also die approximately one year after he was released after serving his time for the voyeurism and child porn charges. There is effectively no one left on this earth who knows what happened to Susan Powell, and she still has not been found. On May 21st, 2013, West Valley City Police announced that they would be closing the investigation into Susan's disappearance. In a set of documents released, police would state, not for the first time, but for the first time in as much detail, that they believed Josh likely killed Susan, and Michael, his brother, likely helped him dispose of her body. Unfortunately, however, they said that they didn't have enough evidence to prove this in court. According to Pierce County Prosecutor Mark Lindquist, there is direct evidence, there is circumstantial evidence, there is motive, there is everything but a body. In these documents, it also came out that Josh Powell was likely having an affair months before his wife disappeared. These records show that in August of 2010, Police were in contact with a woman in West Valley, Utah, whose name is redacted in all of the documents after her number was discovered recurring in Josh's phone records. 
she would speak with police and admit to having a sexual relationship with Josh, but allegedly she knew him by a totally different name. He referred to himself to her as Josh Staley, and this woman didn't know that Josh was even married until she saw the case of Susan's disappearance unfolding in the news. She had actually notified police of this affair just days after Susan's story broke headlines, apparently, but she declined to provide any further corroborating evidence or information and neglected to elaborate any further about the nature of their relationship. And speaking of Josh's exes, Catherine Everett, the woman who broke up with him in 1999 over the phone after she took a spontaneous trip to Utah while the two were living in Washington, was quoted on the Cold podcast by KSL for the first time since the story broke, that she believes Josh is, quote, absolutely and utterly capable of doing something like that. In a report I read from the Associated Press, West Valley City Police Deputy Chief Phil Quinlan stated that police suspected Michael and Josh were using quote-unquote sophisticated computer encryption to communicate with each other about their plans. I'm not entirely sure what this means, but in the context of the early 2000s, I'm not entirely confident that police would have had the ability to uncode whatever sophisticated encryption techniques were being employed by Michael and Josh. And because of that, for all intents and purposes, they got away with it. Now, five people are deceased. Susan, Josh, Brayden, Charles, and Michael. And although I don't know exactly what was Michael's motive for killing himself one year after his brother, I can assume what unfolded between him and his brother regarding Susan likely had a large part to play. In 2013, Josh and Michael's estranged sister Jennifer wrote a memoir with co-author Emily Clausen about the Powell family's tumultuous history and the story of Susan Powell. This memoir is titled A Light in Dark Places, and according to Jennifer, it was written to quote, help other people recognize abuse in either their own relationships or relationships around them because it's not always completely apparent. In 2015, Susan's dad, Chuck Cox, won what was called a protracted court battle over having Susan legally declared deceased against Terika, Josh's mom. Terika and Alina, Josh's sister, reportedly wanted to be able to collect Susan's life insurance. They couldn't do that until she was recognized as deceased. Thankfully, Chuck won control over Susan's entire estate, but I felt like this point was important to mention because it highlights how incredibly chaotic, conniving, and malicious the Powell family really was. Each one of their family members were selfish in their own ways. And again, I think that had a lot to do with Josh growing up and becoming the man that he was. Another interesting point to bring up is that Susan's family also tried to sue the Washington Department of Social and Health Services and its social workers, claiming that their agency prioritized Josh's parental rights over the safety of both of their grandchildren. Consequently, they blame the Washington Department of Social and Health Services and their social workers for Braden and Charlie's death. Now, although I do believe that Chuck and Judy Cox and the rest of Susan's family are well within their rights to grieve and seek justice in whatever ways they can do so, I have a couple feelings about wanting to place blame directly on the social workers involved. 
Although I do not believe at all that Elizabeth Griffin Hall, the social worker who was present at the time of the explosion, was at fault in the slightest, and if anything, I believe that she is a victim to witnessing a horrific trauma and having to now live with that for the rest of her life, I do have to recognize that James Manley, who did the evaluations on Josh regarding his parental rights and ability to care for his children, did come out and say in 2013 that he did suspect Josh in Susan's disappearance and death, but didn't report on it in his evaluation as it was quote-unquote outside the scope of his role. But to me, on top of all of the other maladaptive traits that he recognized within Josh that were frankly potentially dangerous to the well-being of his children, being reasonably suspicious that someone is potentially involved in committing a violent crime against his children's mom, especially with the children's recounts of quote-unquote, mommy was in the trunk, indicate to me that someone is capable of committing a violent crime potentially against anyone. I personally think more emphasis on the ongoing criminal investigation should have gone on Josh's record of evaluation. Now, I say that as I recognize that I don't know how the social services system works in Washington, but I do know that given Josh's familial and life history, his experiences in relationships, and how he treated Susan, which was recognized by Susan's family and friends, I think his visitation rights should have been a lot more limited especially after he was determined to have to go under a psychosexual evaluation if he even wanted a chance at regaining custody of his kids. And let me remind you, that determination was made after child porn in cartoon version, a noose, and a violent sex poster was found in his home, the same home that his children would have had access to at the time. Again, although I do not believe that Elizabeth Griffin Hall was at all at fault in this incident, I think there were a lot of red flags with Josh, and it's unfortunate that nobody picked up on them before his children were murdered. In 2014, a federal court granted a ruling that the social workers involved had immunity and were not negligent in the murders of Charlie and Brayden. But interestingly, in 2019, that decision was partially overruled and the social workers maintained their immunity, but not the Department of Social and Health Services as a whole. A jury would end up ruling that there was institutional negligence and Susan's son's estate was granted $98 million. To really solidify taking action against this kind of institutional negligence, Susan's family began to work to pass bills in Washington and Utah to restrict or block entirely the visitation rights of parents who are being investigated for murder. As of right now, Susan Powell is still missing and presumed murdered. At the time of the incident, she was only 28 years old. Her remains have never been recovered. Deputy Chief, ironically named Mike Powell, stated, Quote, we don't have a body, we don't have a crime scene. I've spoken briefly on this show about why no body cases are quite tricky, but I found a good quote by Laura Miller, who was the Salt Lake City District Attorney for the first year of the Susan Powell investigation. Laura said, You have to either have a substantial period of time where the person is missing, where you can assume she's dead and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she's dead to a jury, or some pretty overwhelming evidence as to the fact that she's dead and the person did it, they are very, very hard cases to prove. 
I'm going to interpret here a little bit and assume that overwhelming evidence as to the fact that she's dead and the person did it means something like evidence of a fatal injury that police can't ignore. Something like this might be a massive amount of blood located at a crime scene that is matched to the suspected victim and is characteristic of a fatal wound. But really, just off the top of my head, I can't really think of any other pieces of evidence that would prove to be absolutely deterministic of a fatal injury or proof of death without finding a body, at least to a jury. This is especially important when considering the court of law. A defense team can very easily bring up the point of, how do you know she's dead if you don't even have her body? By consequence, how do you know that she's been murdered if you don't even know that she's dead? As simple as that might sound, and although even police concede that she likely was murdered, that statement alone is enough to induce reasonable doubt. And the tricky part is that prosecutors only have one shot at proving a case and finding their defendant guilty. Because if they can't prove it, and the defense is able to successfully induce reasonable doubt into the minds of the jury, and the defendant is acquitted, then we have a case of double jeopardy, and he would not be able to be tried for the same crime twice, making it impossible to ever pursue justice for Susan if evidence was found later on that proved that he did murder her. Another quote from Laura Miller states, You know exactly what the defense is going to argue. Presumably, again, like I said, you can't even prove she's dead without a body. Quote, You hope and pray you're getting closer to the key piece of evidence that's going to make it a closed case. Unquote. Interestingly, now, scholars, defense lawyers, and other prosecutors who have studied and followed this case believe that authorities probably could have convicted Josh if they continued to press forward, but for all intents and purposes, it seems like they were trying. Although that is a frustrating thought to sit on, the fact that Josh could have been behind bars right now for the murder of his wife instead of deceased after killing her and his two children, police had no way of knowing that he was about to commit a violent double murder-suicide and frankly annihilate his whole family in less than five years. That is all from me today, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this case as much as I enjoyed compiling it for you, and I highly recommend you check out the book A Light in Dark Places by Josh's estranged sister, Jennifer. I'll have it linked in the source material on my website at crimopediapod.ca. If you go there, you can find all the source material for this episode. You can also find a case suggestion forum where you can recommend to me a case that you want me to talk about. If you want to communicate directly, you can DM me on Instagram at crimopediapod. We can chat about cases, you can give me a suggestion there, or you can give me your two cents on what you think happened to Susan Powell. But I'm pretty sure I know what you're all going to think. Take care, everyone. Stay tuned for the next episode, and I'll be here sharing it with you on November 30th, 2022.